Hi there and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos. Tonight, the countdown is on. We will be there putting more money on the table. Premiers are now in Ottawa ahead of tomorrow's big healthcare sit-down with the Prime Minister. We'll tell you what we know so far about what's on the table and we'll ask Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Andrew Fury what he wants to walk away with. Then, spy balloon fallout. So this was no weather thing, this was nefarious. U.S. Navy divers are recovering parts of the suspected Chinese spy balloon off the coast of South Carolina after it was shot down over the weekend. How is Canada responding and could this make an already strained relationship with China worse? MPs will be here to debate. But first... To our top story tonight, premiers are in Ottawa at this very moment, ahead of tomorrow's highly anticipated and long-awaited health care funding meeting with the Prime Minister. For months, the premiers have been calling on the feds to increase their share of health care funding through increasing the Canada health transfer. Collectively, the increase they want amounts to about an extra $28 billion a year. This is really one of the most significant political meetings in years, and it couldn't come soon enough for Canadians from coast to coast to coast who are dealing with a health care crisis. No family doctors, long waits in the ER, and even longer surgical wait times have become almost commonplace. The Prime Minister will come to the table tomorrow with a two-hour presentation on his proposal, and then it'll be up to the Premier's. Yes, there will be increases uh, to the funding that we're sending to the provinces for health care, but there's also going to need to be flexibility for every province that has different needs and a different system. Our priority is that any agreement that does not include clear commitments to hire more frontline health care workers would be a failure. I am concerned uh, that we haven't seen a proposal yet and we're sitting down tomorrow to have those discussions. Andrew Fury is the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Hi, Premier Fury. Good to see you and welcome to Ottawa. Hi, Vashi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I appreciate you making the time. Look, I've been speaking to some sources in Ontario's government. They have a pretty clear sense of what will be on the table for, for that province from the federal government. I just listened to Manitoba's Premier Heather Stephenson said she hasn't seen any any details whatsoever where a proposal is concerned where do you fit into that spectrum do you have a a sense a pretty clear sense of what's on the table for newfoundland and labrador from the federal government well i think i know as much as any premier knows and perhaps as much as the general public has been aware and that there appears to be evolving a conceptual framework of an increase in the cht with a quantum of money set aside for negotiations with respect to bilateral agreements amongst provinces. Uh, for us in Newfoundland and Labrador, I've been very clear about our shared priorities, which I think are very aligned with the federal government's shared priorities and arguably with all of Canada's uh, priorities with respect to uh, advancing a modernized healthcare system, whether that's through uh, primary care, uh, advancing long-term care, mental health and addictions, surgical wait times, or technology within the medical practice. Uh, those are all the shared priorities that I have uh, and that are important for Newfoundland and Labrador, and, and I'm hopeful that they're the ones that the federal government uh, shares as well. And, and I certainly do have some questions on those priorities in a moment, but just on the quantum of money as, as you phrased it, I was reading an interview with you last summer where you said that in a meeting like the one that's going to happen tomorrow, money ne doesn't necessarily have to be a focus, the focus of the conversation. Have you changed your mind? No, I mean, I, I've always said that money is important, 
but I've I've heard in the rhetoric that's a, that's been in the public sphere that just throwing money at it is not going to change it, and that's absolutely right. Just shoveling more money into a broken healthcare system isn't right. But we have a generational opportunity in front of us here to use new money to modernize the healthcare system. And for Newfoundland and Labrador, we've already put together a plan, involved all stakeholders from all political stripes, to look at how to modernize a healthcare system that is sustainable well into the future. We, right now, Canada is stuck with a healthcare system that was designed in the 1960s. And for Newfoundland and Labrador, just as an example, back then, there were six children for every senior. Today in Newfoundland and Labrador, there's two seniors for every child. That's a massive difference in demographics and one that definitely impacts the delivery of healthcare and, frankly, the cost of healthcare. So we need to modernize it. We need to make sure that it's sustainable well into the future. And sure, money is an important part of it, but it can't be the only part of this discussion. Yeah, and I think everyone I've spoken to, all the premiers I've, inter I've interviewed agree that that is true, that obviously not just money will do the trick, yeah. but that there is a sum of money that is needed from the federal government in order to, as you put it, kind of implement the changes that premiers are hoping to make. When you think about that sum of money, do you expect the federal government comes to the table prepared to match the ask uh, collectively of premiers of $28 billion extra dollars a year, or are you prepared for something less? Well, let's see what they come to the table with. Um, certainly, but what are you uh, whenever prepared for? Uh, negotiations start, or, well, let's see what they come with. I'm not going to bias the discussion or predispose what they're going to come to the table with. I'm quite uh, confident uh, that us, ver the very fact that we're here, Vashi, the very fact that the Prime Minister has, has, has convened this meeting that uh, we've been asking as Premiers for for almost two years now is an important step, a, a gesture of goodwill that we're all here together, working collaboratively uh, for the advancement of a sustainable healthcare system, a modern healthcare system that Canadians once again can be proud of. So I'm not going to predispose any, uh, any, any discussions around the actual quantum until I see it. Uh, but I'm confident that we're here, uh, that there is uh, a level of shared priorities that can meet the needs of Canadians today and into the future. Speaking of that sharing, Premier, uh, the Globe and Mail is reporting today that the federal government will expect, uh, alongside the transfer of more money, that provinces don't decrease their share, really, of provincial health care money, so that it doesn't go sure. to other program spending. Uh, can you agree to those terms? Incremental increases in healthcare spending. Certainly, I can agree to that. In Newfoundland and Labrador, we are uh, we're doing above uh, above and beyond because we need to invest the money incrementally in addition to what we've already invested to modernize the system. Now, w will there be savings long term? Perhaps with the utilization of modern technology and expanding scope of practice and some other inventive, creative, uh, modern solutions. Uh, but certainly uh, incremental uh, proposition is something that we'd be certainly willing to entertain. No doubt about it. Sorry, can I, can I ask in layman's terms when you say incremental, uh, is that different than uh, saying, okay, I won't, I won't decrease the amount of money I'm investing in healthcare so long as I get this money from the federal government? Like, can you explain that in layman's terms? Yeah, sure. So it'll be in addition to what we're already spending uh, in, in terms of our provincial spend right now. The additional money provided by the federal government uh, currently will be uh, added to what we're, it'll be additive, I guess, uh, to uh, what we're currently spending. And that's a pledge you, can, you feel you can make for the next 10 years? 
Absolutely. It's going to take us, and we have a 10-year health accord in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's going to take us uh, an investment uh, certainly in the first five years up front to modernize the system, whether it's utilizing technology, eliminating red tape and the practice of medicine, uh, reducing surgical wait lists by increasing capacity, recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals, including those hardworking nurses on the front lines. All of that is going to take some money up front to get to a sustainable place. Uh, we're in crisis right now. We need to mitigate that, get to a sustainable place, and then look to the future. I'm confident that uh, given the plan that we have, uh, the additive nature, the incremental nature of any increased expenditure will be one that we can allocate uh, responsibly to achieve those goals in Newfoundland and Labrador. Before I let you go, Premier, uh, I was reading a letter from the opposition in your province to you after the Doug Ford announcement in Ontario where the Premier in this province pledged to clear the surgical backlog through the use of private for-profit uh, clinics. And uh, I wanted to ask you whether, A, you are thinking about doing something similar because there are big surgical wait lists in your province as well, and B, whether you think the Prime Minister should tie healthcare money to that concept. Yeah, so first of all, I'm not going to start with the, the latter. I'm not going to address what the, the, the operations and authority of operating a healthcare system rightfully belongs with individual premiers. In our jurisdiction, uh, we are looking at uh, utilizing public spaces uh, more efficiently, more effectively. For example, we're utilizing some of our rural hospitals uh, to increase uh, capacity with respect to joint replacement volumes, uh, ones that are being slightly underutilized with respect to their OR capacity. So we're taking surgeons and anesthesiologists and patients even from the urban center and bringing them to rural centers and then, and then transferring them back. I do think that there's an opportunity, and I can tell you as a surgeon, I've been sat, sat in the OR lounge frustrated with the inefficiencies. There's, a, there's an ability, and, and we should be looking at it, uh, how to make the system more effective and more efficient. But I do think uh, more aligned with Dr. Robert Bell in terms of his approach in ensuring that this is a not-for-profit driven entity. Uh, so effective, efficient, outside what would people would traditionally uh, imagine with respect to a hospital in, in terms of bricks and mortar, surgical, uh, surgical capacity outside those walls. But I do believe that that should be in a, in a non-profit uh, non entity. So just to ask you uh, bluntly, have you ruled out as Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador the use of private for-profit clinics to address any kind of surgical backlog? Well, right now across the country, those th some of those exist currently, whether it's in cataracts or other delivery but have of, you ruled of certain out expanding surgical services. Right now, it, uh, right now in Newfoundland and Labrador, where we're focused on not-for-profit or public-funded entities. Okay, Premier, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. That's Andrew Fury, the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. The Premier of Quebec, Francois Legault, just arrived here in Ottawa. He's taking questions from reporters. Let's take a listen in. Happy after two years, finally, we had a meeting with Mr. Trudeau, second, to have a proposal that uh, we'll see what's the amount. We'll see that, that it's a unconditional uh, proposal, and uh, we'll see that tomorrow. And the premiers were meeting tonight and to be united. Well, I will wait to see tomorrow. 
before telling you if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. Uh, before Christmas, uh, I thought it was uh, looking good and the amount would be substantial. On the idea that the federal government will split the money between the health transfer, which has few conditions, and bilateral deals that will have more conditions. Okay. Do you accept bilateral deals? Okay. First, it's important uh, to say that we already have a plan, a long-term plan in Quebec. So we know uh, what are our priorities. We know how to invest the money. We don't need the federal government to tell us how to invest the money. Now, if there's a part, a part via the CHT and a part that is in our priorities, that's okay. And so far, what Mr. Trudeau told me is that he's asking for to share some data. So we already publish a lot of data to pop the population, so I have no problem giving these data to Mr. The Premier of Quebec there, François Legault, taking questions from reporters about his expectations for that big meeting between the Premiers and the Prime Minister tomorrow to focus, of course, on the prospects of a health care funding agreement between all of them. I want to bring in my colleague, CTV's senior political correspondent, Glenn McGregor, who was listening in to those comments. Interesting that Quebec, you know, Quebec's in these big, big federal talks. Quebec's always a big question mark. And, And he's saying the data thing before Christmas is okay, but beyond that, don't tell us how to spend our money. That should make things a bit interesting tomorrow. Quebec is always a special case and there always has to be kind of exceptions made and to accommodate it uh, in these kinds of deals uh, for the 13 uh, other governments. Uh, All the premiers are saying basically the same thing on their way in. That is, we're going to see what the offer is tomorrow because, and they're claiming they don't know, but I think they all probably have a pretty good idea. And I think we're starting to get a sense of what that's going to be. And it's looking like kind of a blended offer. There's going to be a base uh, increase to the Canada health transfer uh, mechanism or possibly just an additional amount of money on top of the existing Canada health transfer that's going to apply to all the provinces individually and that's assessed per capita based on their population and then there are going to be these bilateral agreements with the, each province including Quebec that are going to be shaped kind of bespoke agreements depending on each province's need because as you know Premier Fury was talking about the Atlantic Canada provinces have much older population they have they need to put money into long-term care uh, for elder care in a way that somewhere like say Alberta or Ontario doesn't have to do that so this in the federal government's uh, reasoning is why they want to take this two-track approach to it but the devil will be in the details tomorrow Will the premiers accept the basic increase, whatever it's going to be? We don't know exactly what the number is yet. We're getting a sense of possibly what what ballpark it's in. Keep in mind, right now, the Canada Health Transfer increases by a minimum of 3% every year. That's because of an agreement that uh, was put in place by Stephen Harper. He said... Kept in place by the Liberals. Kept in place by the Liberals. Well, they tried to increase it a little bit, right? They tried to increase it to 3.5% of the floor, but that deal didn't didn't take off. But it was supposed to be... all. But that was the minimum, and it could be higher depending on nominal GDP. Right now, we're heading into... All economists are telling us GDP is going to fall off a cliff probably in the next year, and we will be back at that baseline. So, provinces and territories all looking for a big increase 
on top of that, plus their own special deal. I know. I like how they're all saying it's not about the money, but it is about the money. <laughs> a little bit, at yeah. least. We're, we're watching tomorrow to see what that dollar figure is. Glenn, thanks so much. Nice. CTV's senior political correspondent, Glenn McGregor. And we will be talking about this a little bit later with our front bench panel here tonight. Miriam Monsaf, Melanie Parody, Kathleen Monk, and J.D. Bellavance. Coming up, though, after a quick break, surveillance balloon scare. The suspected Chinese balloon was shot down over the weekend. What is still a concern, though, and really since it passed over parts of Canada, how might it affect our relationship, already strained relationship with China? MPs will be here to debate that right after this. We are learning more tonight about that suspected Chinese surveillance balloon. White House officials are now insisting improvements ordered by U.S. President Joe Biden to strengthen defenses against Chinese espionage helped identify it. Critical search and recovery efforts continue as Navy divers look for remnants of that balloon. Over the weekend, of course, a fighter jet shot it down off the coast of the Carolinas. Our approach with China has been pretty clear, and we've been very um very clear about this, that, that, and it will be continue to be calm, resol uh, resolute, and, uh, and practical. That is not going to change on how we're going to move forward with our relationship with China. China is responding to what unfolded as well, claiming they had lost control of what they're calling an unmanned civilian balloon and insisting the White House is overreacting. That balloon, though, didn't just hover above the U.S. It came through parts of this country or over parts of this country, rather, on its way there, too. So what could all of this mean for Canada's relationship with China? MPs are here to talk about that with us this evening. Liberal MP Talib Nur Mohammed, Conservative Foreign Affairs critic Michael Chong, and NDP National Defense critic Lindsay Matheson. Hi, everybody. Nice to see you. Uh, Mr. Mohammed, when this balloon was above Canada, was it spying on Canadians, on Canadian military infrastructure? Was it spying on Canada? I think what we know is that our uh, military was actively engaged uh, when we did find out. And uh, there, there was a full review done, full analysis done by the military, and they were confident there was no imminent threat uh, to Canadians and that everything that was being done was being done uh, to monitor and to surveil uh, that, that balloon in collaboration with, uh, with NORAD partners, of course, the United States. And uh, we can feel confident uh, in the work that our uh, defense, uh, that our defense uh, department did. So the U.S. and the Defense Department there has said unequivocally that this was a surveillance balloon and it was spying on American infrastructure, among other things. So my question, my original question to you, and I take your point that you're working in concert with the U.S., was it doing the same when it was over Canada? I mean, we can we can only assume that what it was doing in the United States it was doing here, and this is where I think our uh, strong relationship with with the United States and the fr frankly. Uh, the skill of our of our military and ensuring that our infrastructure and our information was protected, uh, they would have done exactly what uh, they would do under such circumstances. They are trained to do. They are trained to protect Canada in these circumstances. Well, the relationship, Mr. Chong, with the U.S. is certainly strong when it comes to information sharing. Clearly, this is more evidence that the relationship with China, already strained, uh, you know, is is very strained. Uh, what, what do you make of what happened, and what should we be drawing from it? Well, I think the balloon highlights the need for the Trudeau government to do three things. First, we have to end research collaboration, the funding of research by the federal government in the areas of quantum cryptography, photonics, and space science. Exactly the kinds of technologies this, uh, this spy balloon was using to surveil North America, both Canada and the United States. Do you mean through, sorry to interrupt, but through universities or through NSERC? Because NSERC, they have changed the rules around. Well, they haven't, actually. They've issued guidelines which aren't preventing the granting you councils. Want a ban. 
I want a ban. I want a ministerial policy directive that bans the Canadian government funding research and collaboration with Beijing's military university, the National University for Defence Technology. That research is still taking place despite the government's guidelines, which clearly aren't working. That's why it's time for a ministerial order, a ministerial policy directive banning this kind of research collaboration. The other two things the government needs to do, this highlights the need for the government to come clean with Canadians on the costs and the timelines to renew NORAD's early warning system, which was built in the 1980s and is woefully adequate, inadequate to dealing with the threats we're facing. And finally, we need to join ballistic missile defense. Uh, those are the three things that we need to do. And I think this balloon that drifted through our air, airspace this weekend highlights why we need to do those three on, things. On the third one, ballistic missile defense, I remember covering it when Jason Kenney was, the former Premier of Alberta, was Minister of Defense, and, and it was ultimately... The Conservatives, who initially decided against it, the Liberals have reiterated. Well, that it was decision. initially initially the Martin government. Uh, Everybody 2004 has, that decided you, against. You can see that it. was a mistake across party lines. Well, not back then. We didn't. China wasn't the threat uh, it is today. That started to change about five six years ago when pre- the 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 characteristics of President Xi's regime became clear. When it became clear that he was not going to or join more widely reported? the world, the rules based international order. Sorry, or maybe just more widely reported. I mean, there were human rights abuses committed in China prior to five years. Not ago. of the scale we're seeing today. He becomes president in 2012. Um, it takes about four years for Western countries to understand that he's going to be a very different president than his president than his predecessor, President Hu. Uh, and so I think by 2016, 2017, it becomes clear, which is why CSIS in 2018 warns the Canadian government against research collaboration in sensitive areas of research, the, the uh, uh, advice that the current government has ignored. Okay, let's let's pick up on that subject, uh, Ms. Matheson, because uh, from my understanding, from my reading, the U.S. has kind of put out this edict, don't collaborate with these researchers. Uh, you know, I think even under President Obama is, is when it happened. Would you agree with Mr. Chong's position that the federal government consider the same the same idea? I think that uh, all options need to be explored. We need to study this more. But one of the things that I uh, am concerned about and want to see is, of course, to have this balloon back to, to, I know that the the divers are trying to find it. They're trying to find pieces of it so that we can actually see specifically with absolute proof that this is in case the fact. Oftentimes... Are are you worried that there's a lack of proof right now? I mean, there are U.S. jets that went in to make sure that there weren't weapons on it. Like, they know there were high-resolution cameras on it. You don't believe that? It's not that I don't believe it. It's that I want to see the proof. It's that I want to see before we start charging forward that we have absolutely all information that we need right. uh, to to make that really good judgment call. And I think that, that Michael's absolutely right in terms of funding of NORAD, in terms of our upgrading and modernization of NORAD and, and that partnership with the United States, that we move forward in that way, that we continue uh, to ensure that Canadians, our information, our infrastructure is all safe, but that we have to have that proof. But, and but, that's but can I just challenge you for a moment respectfully on that? Like, what about China's pattern of behavior would make this being a surveillance balloon out of the ordinary for, for what it does? Like, why, why wouldn't you believe what the Pentagon says? It's not, I'm not saying that I don't believe what the Pentagon says. I'm saying but that I want... But proof is hard to find if the thing blew up over the ocean, right? Right, and they're doing that dive now, and they're trying to find what that proof is, Right. So they find that we go forward. One of the things that, that we have proof, to be though, careful of, yeah, one of the you... things that we have to be careful of is again that charging ahead. The more aggressive we are, the more aggressive China is. So we 
We I have get to, that, but this isn't the first thing that they've done in this vein. That's why I'm challenging you. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like this, like you're waiting for proof that you know exploded into a million pieces when this this is a balloon that did have high resolution cameras on it that was floating above Canada and the United States. It didn't explode into a million pieces. There are pieces of it that are available. They have to go find them. We have to examine that. But the the point is, is that we continue on to ensure that we go forward with that NORAD modernization, something that helped us in this situation, uh, that partnership in terms of the United States. So that that we that we have uh, and we move forward with that to ensure that Canadians and in our in our information I is have. safe. Oh. But it's that it's clear information. Okay, I have time just for one more question. I'm going to pick up on what both your colleagues said, Mr. No Mohammed. Uh, why hasn't the federal government been more specific with the idea that researchers at university are collaborating with researchers researchers rather essentially funded by the Chinese military? Like, is that if President Obama years ago could say that's a no go? Why haven't you yet? So I think there's a couple of things. First is the guidelines have worked, right? We have 60% of the project proposals that were submitted were rejected on national security grounds. Now, that doesn't mean we can't do more. Minister Champagne has been, since this, uh, since we've uh, seen the, the new posture of, of uh, President Xi, been actively engaged in talking to university presidents about ensuring that Canada's national security is paramount in all of these conversations, that we do not go down the road of creating additional grief and additional, uh, frankly, risk for Canada. And we are committed to that. And we're going to keep leaning in. But there's Still is, sure that there, there are still universities working with these groups. Like this is still very active, right? Regardless of NSERC funding it, the universities are free to do it on their own. And this is this is where do you have a problem with that? No, I do think we need to do more, and I do think that this is where Minister Champagne, working with the universities now, is going to is having some very very important conversations, and those conversations will lead to action. And I think we're all unified in in making sure that we are doing taking the steps to keep Canadians safe, and this is not and should not be a partisan issue. Okay, I have to uh, really quick because I have yeah. to go. I'm well, sorry. 60% of the applications were rejected. That means 40% of the applications were approved to fund research in collaboration with China's military. It's proof that the guidelines aren't working okay, right there. I promise you this will be a, a discussion in the future because uh, the threat of China and the disintegration of the relationship between our two countries is certainly not any, anytime soon. So thank you very much to Lieb Nur Mohammed, Michael Chong, and Lindsay Matheson. We've got a lot more coming up this afternoon, or this evening, I guess I should say, including we'll return to our top story that... The prospects for a deal between the premiers and the prime minister at their big meeting on health care tomorrow. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to Power Play on this Monday evening. This is the list, a roundup of what's happening in politics today. A powerful 7.8 magnitude earthquake has killed at least 3,400 people in Turkey and neighboring Syria. The quake hit early Monday morning, followed by a series of aftershocks. It's one of the strongest earthquakes to hit the region in a century. Thousands of people have also been injured, with hundreds of buildings toppled. The World Health Organization says that death toll could rise as rescuers race to find survivors underneath the rubble. The first Leopard 2 tank, meanwhile, donated to Ukraine from Canada, has officially arrived in Poland. Defense Minister Anita Anand posted this video to Twitter last night of the tank being loaded into a cargo plane in Halifax. She also posted a photo of it being offloaded in Poland. Canada has pledged to send four battle tanks to Ukraine with the potential for more. 
Canada has also deployed one of its military planes to Haiti in the face of a growing humanitarian rather crisis there. The government says it'll provide surveillance and intelligence to help, quote, disrupt the activities of gangs. The Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince has been held hostage for months by feuding gangs, shutting down roads and essential services, and leading to a resurgence of cholera there. Coming up, all eyes on our top story, that big meeting tomorrow between the premiers and the prime minister to talk health care funding. Next, our front bench panel is here to talk about this once in a generation meeting. Stay with us. Welcome back to Power Play. Premiers continue to arrive in Ottawa this evening in anticipation of that big meeting with the Prime Minister on health care funding tomorrow. BC's Premier David Eby just got here. Let's have a listen to him taking questions from reporters live. I want to ask, will you commit to maintaining or even increasing your provincial share of health care regardless of what the federal government comes with? If they, do they have to increase or will you commit to keeping your provincial share of health care or even increasing it? Well, our government has been focused on uh, delivering for British Columbians around health care, and that has meant significant increases to our provincial health budget. We're going to make sure that British Columbians are looked after, independent of whatever happens around this table, which includes increasing our health budget to make sure urgent care is there for people, people have access to a family doctor. So that's certainly not a concern for British Columbia. If the federal government doesn't come up to that 35% number, though, is that going to be a non-starter for D.C.? Well, we're not coming into this discussion with any red lines. We're coming in with an open mind. We want to see what the Prime Minister is going to present. Our core goal here is to make sure the British Columbians have the health care they deserve and that we have a federal partner that's there for British Columbians as well. Premier Evie, are you able to address sort of the distinction between the bilateral deals and the health transfer? Is it your view that more of that new spending should go through the health transfer, or are you okay if the focus is on the health on bilateral deals, where, where there are more conditions is the point? Well, I think uh, the division between the bilateral piece and the health transfer is going to be a key part of the discussion around the table uh, for the premiers. And uh, for British Columbia, what we're looking for is, uh, is a federal partner that's there for us on the core healthcare system, but we also are looking at expansions of the healthcare system, especially around mental health and addiction, around our home care, supporting seniors with long-term care. So we're ready to have those discussions with the feds, and I know my colleagues uh, from around the country are as well. Can you explain what do you mean when you, when you say the key focus of the talks is this distinction? What is, what is the sticking point there? Why is that a key focus? What are you looking for in that? Well, I think it'll be a significant part of the discussion. There'll be a discussion about all kinds of technical things, about an escalator, about the division between the bilateral and the, and the health transfer amounts and so on. But what British Columbians really care about is that the health care system will be there for, their, for them and that our provincial government is focused on that. And that's what we're going into this discussion around the table to make sure uh, that we've got a good federal partner and we've got the resources we need to deliver for British Columbians. But are you concerned? Okay, that is uh, BC's Premier David Eby taking questions from reporters as he arrives here in Ottawa. He, along with his provincial counterparts, are set to meet with the Prime Minister tomorrow on the very thing you heard him discuss, the prospects of uh, one overarching deal that would see the Canada health transfer increase and then bilateral health deals that will target each province's specific needs. I want to bring in the front bench. They're with us this evening to talk about how likely that is and what the stakes are like for that meeting. Former Liberal Cabinet Minister Miriam Monsat, 
Steff is here. She's now the CEO of Onward. Former communications director to Erin O'Toole, Melanie Parody is here as well. She's now the president of Texture Communications. NDP strategist and Monk and Associates principal owner Kathleen Monk is with us, as is La Presse's Ottawa bureau chief, Joël Denis Bellevance. Hi, everybody. Hi there. Very nice to see you. I know you've been there, uh, JD, at the meetings, talking to the premiers. How likely do you think this thing, I know they're, they're all saying we're not going to sign anything, no. but do you think it does set the stage tomorrow for a deal quickly thereafter? That's the expectations on the part of the federal uh, government, but also on the part of some provinces, namely British Columbia and Ontario. Quebec will want to make sure, if I can speak about Quebec, they want to make sure that there's no conditions attached to it. So I heard Premier Legault yeah. say that, yeah. So they're looking for asymmetry. Uh, that's the <laughs> constitutional word that uh, is very much revered in Quebec, uh, asymmetry, asymmetric federalism. <laughs> but uh, I think it will probably uh, set the stage for a deal uh, quite quickly, I think, bilateral deals. And there won't be any negotiations on the overall increase of health transfers. That's going to be take it or leave it, but it's going to be, they're going to take it. Uh, and then negotiations will take place on bilateral agreements with every province. So that's to be followed. Yeah, and, and when it comes to those bilateral deals, Kathleen, like everything I hear is Ontario's ready to sign on the dotted yeah. line. They've been working the back channels. Saskatchewan, there might be some resistance from due to like some friction between Scott Moe mm -hmm. and the Prime Minister. And then Quebec is always the big question mark, as JD points out, for, for a number right. of reasons. What are you, what do you, what do you think might happen and how high do you think the stakes are? I think it's going to be really difficult for those provinces who are looking to slow walk these deals, to slow it down, to slow down the negotiations to do so. Because there is, as JD says, the overwhelming pressure, not just from Ontario and BC and possibly Newfoundland as well, to move forward on these things that these provinces have deadlines too. They have budget deadlines. Budget, yeah. And I think as we just saw on that EB clip is that they understand what the communication challenge is right now. If these premiers are still going to be talking about and wrestling with, you know, ideas around jurisdiction and funding formulas, they will have lost. And conversely, if Prime Minister Trudeau comes out tomorrow with big dollars and big ideas on how we can improve uh patient care, he's going to win the day. And the Liberals need to have a win right now. And they can do that with those big dollars and with real clear ideas and accountability on patient care. Melanie, how high do you think the stakes are for both, as Kathleen has outlined, I think, very well, for both the premiers and the prime minister? Like, how bad does everyone need a win? And, uh, you know, including Canadians who, by the way, are living through this healthcare kind of nightmare. Yeah, Canadians absolutely need the win the most. That's for sure. Um, I, and I also I completely agree with what Kathleen has, has noted. And I would add that Canadians don't care who's responsible. They haven't cared about this for, for a while. They just want access to better health care. Um, they want more access. And we've been talking about this for two years now. The premiers have been asking the federal government for a better deal for two whole years. So a lot has gone into these negotiations. I think I'm really looking forward to, to hearing what Premier Ford has to say at the end of these negotiations, because he's really been leading the charge, especially in the past few weeks, we've heard him saying, we need to get a deal. We need to get this fixed. People can't be waiting around for, for healthcare to magically improve. We've got to sit down, negotiate this, come up with a plan and get going. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say out of these negotiations. I think it will be quite telling. Miriam, what's so interesting in what Melanie just outlined is that how many years have we been covering politics? You living them when Doug Ford was not the, the greatest friend of the Trudeau government and vice versa. And now really he was the one that essentially publicly broke the impasse around strings attached and conditions and whether this meeting would happen. He's the one who first said, I'm willing to accept those conditions if we can get some more money. And from there it kind of snowballed and now there's a meeting. Uh, how significant do you think this meeting 
potentially is. I had someone on my radio program today say it's, maybe it was Tom Mulcair, actually, the former leader of the NDP, say it's like the most politically consequential or significant meeting in, in like a generation. Yeah, and every Canadian who's, you know, experienced what it's like to not have a family doctor, who's taken their infant to the emergency room and has waited over 12 hours is wondering, will I get better results? Will there be additional investments? When my loved one needs elder care or mental health care, will they receive it in a timely and dignified way? So certainly, we're all appreciating the goodwill that seems to be out there that says we're getting closer to a deal. As JD said, tomorrow will not be the final meeting. There's more work to be done. I'll also be looking for, you know, the key to success of this big innovation, this 10-year plan is our care workers, those on the front lines. Is there going to be an acknowledgement that these folks are burnt out, that they need to be paid better, that the hate and the aggression that they have experienced in the workplace, particularly over the past three years, will be addressed. And of course, there's room for innovation. There's a necessity for it. But what I'm afraid of is building into a system incentives to keep people sick. So what kind of safeguards will be in place to prevent people making profits from sick people? What kind of financial oversights will there be? What kind of accountability will there be? And that's the true test of the leaders at the table and the remainder of the work ahead beyond tomorrow. I've got like 30 seconds, JD, but just jumping off that, I've seen no indication that there's going to be any constraints placed on, you know, using private for profit clinics. And we've, no. you know, the, the, the federal government has not signaled that. And I don't no. think provinces are expecting it. As long as you can, you don't have to pay with your credit card. That's the bottom line for Ottawa. You show your medical, uh, M Medicaid card and that's it. And that's the bottom line. And Jean-Yves Duclos has mentioned that and the prime minister as well. So yeah. I'd be surprised if they went another yeah. direction, but I know there's a yeah. lot of people asking them to take a second look, including Judd Singh. Yeah. I'm going to take a quick commercial break, though, because the front bench is sticking around. On the other end of that break, they will weigh in on the controversy surrounding Canada's first special representative to combat Islamophobia. We're back in just a moment here on Power Play. controversy over the Liberals' appointment of a special representative to combat Islamophobia continues to reverberate, particularly in Quebec. Amira El-Gawabi's appointment was lauded by anti-hate advocates, but sparked backlash from many of Quebec's rather political leaders who denounced her past analysis of Bill 21. I would like to say that I'm extremely sorry for the way that my words have carried, how they have hurt the people of Quebec. And this is what I'm going to express to Monsieur Blanchet, but I'm very glad to have the chance to express it. I've had a chance to listen, and this is what it's all about. There's been uh, fingers pointed at Quebec and at the Bill 21, and there's been uh, association of uh, between the Bill 21 and Islamophobia. All of these things put together, whatever her personal qualities might be, disqualify her for the function. And here's the Prime Minister weighing in on it. Quebecers are not racists. Quebecers are among the people who are the strongest defenders of individual rights and freedoms, along with a lot of other Canadians. 
So where do things go from here? Let's bring back the front bench to talk about that. Miriam Monsef, Melly Paradis, Kathleen Monk, and Joël Denis Belvance. Uh, Miriam, I wanted to start with you. Your, I guess your reaction to how this unfolded last week and the controversy around what initially was, you know, celebrated as a big kind of decision for the federal government and then how, how it kind of um, spiraled out of that. Let me start at a high level with Bill 21. It is always wrong for a government to tell people, particularly women, what to wear and what not to wear. All we have to do is to listen to the women of Iran, to the women of Afghanistan, to be reminded of all the ways that's wrong. But to last week, I was disappointed and disgusted by the response from the bloc leader, but also from other like-minded politicians, like the leader of the Conservative Party, who, by the way, had no problem staying quiet about the health care deal being negotiated, but added to the pylon with the appointment of Amira. Now, it's, you know, the meeting that was requested with Amira was clearly a setup. He was going to be denouncing her and the position no matter how the meeting went. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fine and good to say the representative doesn't understand Quebec and then take time to explain to her what it's like in Quebec. But let's take stock of how well the leader of the Bloc Québécois understands what it's like to be a Muslim in Canada where, according to the National Council of Canadian Muslims, we have the highest reported killings of Muslims in the G7. I didn't see any care or curiosity in his part to find out what it's like to be a Muslim woman, to be a Muslim woman wearing the hijab in Quebec, let alone the rest of the country. And so my disappointment there is if there's one place on earth where this courageous conversation can happen, it's here in Canada. And now I understand, Bashi, that the leader of the bloc is only the face of this nationally, that other politicians have piled on. But I will say this, this conversation, this debate will not age well. And those politicians scoring cheap political points on the backs of Muslim women will not be judged kindly over time. JD, help us understand why this is being perceived so differently in in Quebec. Uh, in particular, it it has to do with some uh, previous comments that you heard Ms. Al-Gawabi address in that apology that she made following the meeting with uh, Yves-Francois Blanchet. But, but like uh, Miriam pointed out, he doubled down after yeah. that meeting, right? He said not only should she be removed, but the position eliminated. Yeah, and so it, I thought it was courageous for Madame Al-Gawabi to uh, meet Mr. Blanchet and try to uh, iron out their differences, but uh, you could ex- you were expecting Mr. Blanchet to come out of it and and, and took and take the positions that he took because the Quebec government also right. uh, kept its position. Now the controversy I don't think will go away because some of the comments that attributed to Madame Elgabawi were outrageous to some some people in Quebec, uh, and and I won't go over them, but. It also, I think you see, you see what you saw in that debate is the two solitudes again in Canada being profoundly divided. Um, in Quebec, we have a different relationship with religion as opposed to the rest of Canada. In Quebec, uh, religion is an idea that can be criticized, whereas in, in the rest of Canada, it can, it's part of your identity more 
than, than in the rest of in, in Quebec. So if you criticize the identity, you attack the person. So it's on a different setting. And that comes down to uh, the, the fact that Quebec, the, in Quebec, the uh, uh, Catholic Church used to dominate society in Quebec in the 1960s up until you know, there was a new government elected. Catholic Church used to run education system, the healthcare system. It used to tell women how many kids they would have. You had to do it for your own sake, otherwise you risk the, uh, the risk. You run the risk of being excommunicated from the church. So it was omnipresent, and that's why the relationship between uh, people and faith is very different in Quebec than in the rest of Canada. And I do understand that more largely, Kathleen, especially mm. where the Catholic Church is concerned. What's interesting, though, is that it hasn't necessarily evolved to address like the realities of other religious minorities yeah. right, yeah, right now, true. right? And yeah. in and in particular, in this case, it, it almost feels like it, that exemplifies it. Yeah, and the reality is that Islamophobia is a massive problem in Canada, in all areas of Canada, not just Quebec. And we see it in Alberta, we see it in Toronto, obviously the devastating case in London. And I think that it's not an academic debate, that like lives are at stake. And we saw, you know, various people coming out today, not only calling for uh, Ms. El-Gawabi to, to step down, and but for the position, as J.D. notes, to actually, to actually you know, just not eliminate. But we also saw a letter last week with Charles Taylor, Julius Gray, her, yeah. human rights advocates basically supporting her. And so and so we're seeing this, this these dueling debates. And and maybe it's a sign that we actually have to have the conversation. Yeah. We actually have to have a better conversation in Canada about how we can actually address Islamophobia. And I think that I, I worry that Ms. Al um, who is a woman of great integrity, kindness and and thoughtful, like she she actually is becoming kind of political mm-hmm. roadkill in all of this. And and that's a mistake. And the reaction of just calling for people to resign all the time maybe isn't the reaction we should have, but one of conversation. Okay, Melanie, last word to you on this. Well, two weeks ago on this very panel, we were responding to the Prime Minister's, uh, what we thought at the time were kind of random comments about the notwithstanding clauses sort of came out of the blue on a weekend. Um, And then a few days later, we have this announcement of the appointment for this position. Uh, and then there's some fallout from it. Well, I shouldn't say some. There's a lot of fallout from it. Uh, wall-to-wall coverage in Quebec, lots of criticisms. But there's still another shoe to drop on this. We're still waiting on the court in Quebec to rule on Bill 21. Uh, I'm, I understand that that decision is expected quite soon, like in, within weeks. I, I think that looking back on the timeline now, it, it seems to me like there was a lot of pre-positioning going on here and that some of these conversations were quite deliberately um, set, not set up in a negative way, but but there was some pre-positioning to ensure that Canadians were having these conversations before the, the court makes its decision and before the government has to decide whether it's going to appeal or not. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks, everyone. Lots of fodder to think about. Miriam Monsef, Melanie Paradis, J.D. Belvance, and Kathleen Monk. Here's our takeaway as the premiers get ready to meet the prime minister. Here's Premier Andrew Fury. Uh, incremental increases in health care spending. Certainly, I can agree to that. In Newfoundland and Labrador, we are, uh, we're doing above, uh, above and beyond because we need to invest the money incrementally in addition to what we've already invested to modernize the system. 
That's Premier Fury saying that he is willing to keep increasing money for health care in Newfoundland and Labrador if the federal government sets it as a precondition to any new money from the feds to provinces. That meeting happens tomorrow afternoon. The prime minister is expected to present a proposal on how to increase the Canada health transfer to the premiers over two hours. We will have tons of live coverage. For now, though, I'm going to hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. That does it for us at PowerPlay. Have a great evening.